Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss information overload. How do you deal with a world where there's a constant and overwhelming stream of noise? How do you filter and decide what to pay attention to? How can you determine what's worth your precious time and attention? What should you do with information that you disagree with? In a world full of more and more and more information, this interview with Dr. Thomas Hills explores the solution that will help you finally deal with information overload. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to success podcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. 
or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed how to beat FOMO, the fear of missing out. How do you overcome the emotional barriers and fears of missing out and saying no to things? How do you get over the awful feeling of turning down opportunities? We share simple, actionable strategies for you to say yes to yourself and for you to say yes to what's really important and actually matters in your life. We share a great strategy that you can use to make a huge difference in your life in two minutes or less, and we dig into the important concept that in a world drunk on speed, slowness is a superpower. All that and much more with our previous guest, Carl Honoré. Now for our interview with Dr. Hills. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Thomas Hills. Thomas is a professor of psychology at the University of Warwick. His research involves using algorithmic approaches to understanding the human condition through language, well-being, memory, and decision-making. He is a current fellow of the Allen Turning Institute and the director of the Bridges Leverholm Doctoral Training Center. He also co-directs Warwick's global research priority in behavioral science, and his work's been published in numerous academic journals. Thomas, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me on the show. This is really fun that you and uh, I think your listeners are interested in this area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a topic that I think is so, so important. And, and as your research kind of demonstrates, is becoming increasingly important because it's so dangerous and fraught and potentially problematic. So I'd love to begin with this idea of information overload. And that's almost a buzzword these days. We hear it all the time about how much information there is and all this new content's being created, et cetera. But you really took a, a much more scientific approach to looking at and thinking about this. Tell me what inspired you to dig into that research and what, what did you uncover? Right, right. So yeah, I think you're right. So information overload's sort of been this buzzword for a long time. And I think most people have got it wrong, right? So which is to say, most people think they know what information overload is. They think, gosh, you know, my phone's going off all the time and I get on the, the a news website and there's all these things blinking on the side of the screen and, and that they think that's information overload, right? But really there's this way that the information overload sort of creeps into our lives that that we're re and it changes our identities, right? It changes the way the way we are and the way we think about things. And it does it in this sort of almost secretive way. So part of it is the algorithms that are running underneath, you know, the, the, the recommendation systems that are running underneath uh, sort of personalized news, you know, that are running underneath the fact that people might like to listen to your podcast, for example, and they think, you know, I like the stuff Matt has to say, and he's going to say interesting things. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to that again. But that means that in a sense that you get to control what it is that, that they're listening to. And so part of it is that there's so much information that we necessarily have to filter it for ourselves or algorithms have to filter it for us or we let other people do the filtering. And as a consequence, that changes who we are in part by what kinds of information we actually sort of get fed. So I, I found this partly by accident. My research looks at the way people interact with 
really complicated information. So when I say really complicated information, I mean things like language. So how does a little kid learn language, right? This little kid's bopping around and they don't know anything about, you know, all the sounds they're hearing around them. They're, they're just hearing these sounds, right? And you imagine like a dog, right? Listening, you know, kind of walking around the house and people are talking and they have no idea what any of these words mean, right? And little kid's doing the same thing. And so how is this kid going to pick out which words are the important words or this, which sounds are the important sounds or which concepts are the things that they should learn out of all the, you know, the thousands of possible things they could learn. And so the kind of stuff that I do are, are sort of building algorithms and looking at experimental data the way, well, one of them is, of course, the way kids learn language, but, but also looking at the way, you know, adults might choose well, in behavioral economics, they're, they're often kind of like gambles, right? But you might imagine, so how do you choose a song, right, out of all the possible songs? Or how do you choose a pension plan out of all the possible pension plans? Or how do you choose any particular thing when there's so many different varieties? And it's just like this little kid learning language, right? And so what you learn, I think, or what I've learned in, in, in my research is that there are these cues out there in the environment. There are these, uh, they're sort of partly based on our predispositions. So we have predispositions for certain kinds of information, like information that's, you know, belief consistent, right? Do we, do we already understand it in a way, or have we heard it before? And then it becomes the kind of thing that's attractive, right? Or is it negative, right? And if it's negative, then it becomes kind of like a warning sign. It's almost like a, a stop sign or a police siren and these kinds of things. So, in any case, all these things sort of sort of led me to to realize, gosh, you know, there's a whole, if you will, kind of Pandora's box underneath this problem of information overload. And it's just a matter of partly of us organizing and understanding how it's affecting our own identities and the evolution of those identities. Well, you bring up two really good points. One is this idea that this phenomenon has basically crept into our lives, and yet we may not even have noticed or, or really realized it. And, and the second is this idea that there's so much information out there that it's almost necessary to filter it out in some form or fashion, whether that's relying on a thought leader or an expert or an algorithm. There's just so much that there's no other real way to get some sort of distillation of it. That's right. So I guess partly the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what's the best way to go about this, right? You know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and you get Many of us, anyway, we sort of grew up probably in a, in, in a kind of, you know, quasi-religious or maybe more or less religious background. And But it was just one religion, right, that we got talked to in general. It was probably one religion that, that we got exposed to as a child. And you might ask yourself, okay, well, and many people do, right? I mean, this is sort of a stereotype of the kid who, you know, finally they reach their, their you know, early or sort of their late teens or their early 20s. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, like is, you know, the religion that I practice as a child, is that the kind of religion that I want, right, that I want to pursue in my life? You know, what, why do I believe this thing and not this other thing? And I think that's kind of a, a, so this is sort of saying, well, look, you know, you got filtered one kind of information as a child, but there's all different kinds of ways to believe about the meaning of your own life, or even really simple things like, well, what are you going to eat in your diet? Or how are you going to bring your own kids up? Or what kind of relationship are you going to have with other people? What kind of moral values are you going to have? And all those are 
when you start questioning them, I mean, I think that's the point where where you you're, you get exposed or you realize there's all these other choices in the world. There's all these other kinds of information out there. And so how do you sort of take, if you will, a practical, adaptive, functional, you know, sort of well-adjusted perspective on all this other kinds of information, right? I put it in this one context of, of religion, right? But, um, you know, it applies to everything. It's like we get sort of indoctrinated by the, the way we grow up and, and by the way information is exposed to us. And then we have to sort of make a decision <laughs> or make a series of decisions or maybe, maybe, right? If we're, if we're, I guess, appropriately enlightened, we're kind of constantly making these decisions about, is this the kind of information that I think is valuable? Is it telling me what I need to know? Should I be asking more questions or not? I love the example of things starting with religion, but even going something as simple as, as diet. There's almost an infinite amount of filters that are running in the background that have been pre-programmed or implanted in us from whether it's our experiences or random chance or the people we happen to grow up around. Uh, and all of these shape the way that we perceive and interact with information and even information we decide whether or not we want to interact with. Yeah, that's right. And so, so, I mean, you know, I guess the, how do we decide what the right thing is? I think that's a really tricky thing. It's like what the way many of us do it, which is in my research is, is sort of associated with people's pursuit for belief, consistent information. They look for things that support what they already believe in. This is so incredibly dangerous. I mean, it's, it's not just dangerous to other people, right? It's dangerous to yourself. It's like if you think that you're going to sort of take, you know, an intelligent route through your life, let's say through your relationship, right? This is something that many, many of us have, right? We, we have a relationship with some, some person, right? Um, and we care about this person in life. A, a lot. Now, how are we going to have a good relationship with that person, right? We might think, oh, well, you know, the way I grew up is the way I should, you know, have this relationship with this other person, right? You know, kind of like following in the footsteps of my parents. And we might think, oh, well, you know, that was the right way to do it because that's the way I was exposed to it. And so then, then when we go looking for evidence that that's true, we might only know, if you will, the kind of language that's consistent with what we already experienced, right? You know, dad goes to work and, you know, maybe mom, you know, has, you know, maybe she doesn't go to work or maybe she has a different kind of job, right? I mean, just, I'm almost harking back to the fifties in a way, you know, I mean, this isn't so much in the, the modern world is, is very different, but it's still, there's still many of these sort of predispositions or stereotypes that we carry around with us. And when we go to question them, we have to use the language that we already understand. And so imagine typing something in Google, right? You know, it's like, how do I have a better relationship with my wife, for example? Well, you've already you've used the word wife, right? And you, you know, and you use the word better, right? It's it's sort of you're you're already, if you will, constrained by your language, and so you you kind of like constantly have to be looking out for these new ways to think about it. You know, how many different ways can you ask? For a good relationship, can you ask to improve your relationships with people? That's a great point. And I love the idea of how our vocabulary, and I think it applies in a literal sense to the actual words that we use, but also in a broader sense, the vocabulary of experiences and understanding and ideas that we have fundamentally shape the way that we interact with the world. And the experiences we have in the past shape and define how we even begin to approach the problems and challenges of our lives. 
That's right. That's right. And this is why it's in many cases, it's really important. Uh, so Dan Gilbert talks about it in his book, Stumbling on Happiness, right? You know, it's like, if you wanted to have a happy life, or, or you, let's say if you wanted to have, you, you want to make the right decision, right? In a particular context. So let's say the context is, you know, you, you get an opportunity to move to some interesting place that you've, that, that you've always dreamt about when you were younger. And you get the opportunity to move, but if you to do that, you have to open your family or whatever else, right? And so you might think, well, is that a good decision or a bad decision? And what and what Dan Gilbert says, this is incredibly valuable wisdom that most of us don't use as often as we should. He says the people people tend to have very similar reactions to similar consequences, right? So, you know, so if someone else loses a child and you want to know what it's like to lose a child. Then you, you ask that person, right? You know, it's like, what's it like to lose a child? If you moved, you know, at, uh, at some point in your life, you might ask people who've already experienced that because chances are you're going to have a very similar kind of trajectory in terms of your experiences, right? And so you might imagine that if you didn't do that, you might imagine that, let's say, you know, after the honeymoon's over, when you first move to a new place, and this, this always happens, right? Um, you move to a new place or you meet a new person or whatever else, and there's that set of honeymoon phase where everything's beautiful. And then you start to have these hiccups, right? There, there start to be these situations where it's like, gosh, you know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. If you didn't go out and ask a bunch of other people what it's going to be like, you might think, oh, well, these hiccups reflect the fact that this is imperfect, that this is not the right path for me, right? That I've made a mistake, that I'm never going to recover from this, right? It's never going to get better. It, it was good and now it's getting bad, right? And if you ask other people who've been in these situations, what they'll tell you, of course, is what their experience was. And many of those things will let you know that, in fact, there is a kind of pattern, right? There's a way that people experience these these different events. And so my central point is that, that when we are trying to coming up come up with a new vocabulary to understand a new way to conceptualize our experiences in different situations. Asking other people is really vital because especially people that we wouldn't normally ask, right? So we're really looking for information that doesn't confirm what we already believe. We're looking for new perspectives, new language, new ways to conceptualize the reality of our lives. You bring up a bunch of really important points. The last thing you said is obviously essential, which is this idea of seeking out perspectives from people who have difference of opinion or, or people who disagree with you. But even what you said earlier, which may be a little bit of a tangent, but I think is worth underscoring is this idea of if you want to, if you want to understand the consequences of anything, and you could also use this in a proactive sense, if you want to achieve a certain thing, go look at the people who've done it in the past and study them, whether it's a case study or even kind of bringing in the mental model of base rates and starting to understand, okay, well, what does the general experience look like? And is my experience matching up to that? Or what is the general roadmap of that particular activity or, or achievement look like? And does, is how am I on that roadmap are very useful tools. I want to bring us all the way back and come back to this problem of information overload. One of the important themes from, from your research was this notion of attentional bottlenecks. Tell me a little bit more. We touched on some of the core ideas around that, but t tell me a little bit more exactly what is an attentional bottleneck and why are they so dangerous in the way that we process information today? Yeah, so people who've studied memory, speech, comprehension, I mean, these are, these are really fundamental ideas in psychology, right? And people have been studying them for years, some, in some cases, hundreds of years. And so what we know is that you, know, you can't process all the information that you experience, 
So, I mean, everything that's going on now, you're, there's, there's, you know, all kinds of sounds that, that are in probably in the room around you, or that are coming through the speaker, um, or they're outside the car, if you're listening to this in your car, or wherever. But your brain doesn't process all that stuff. Right? Your brain processes a subset of the information that it thinks is relevant at any given point in time. Now, that's the first part, right? That's just the first step. Now, later on today, right, you may think back to, to when you heard this, and you may think, okay, well, like, what do I remember about that, right? And there's going to be certain things that your mind sort of says, well, you know, Thomas said this, right? And Matt said that. Or this other thing happened while I was listening to, to this podcast, right? And so those are things that come to mind, right? And your, your brain can kind of roll them over and think about, you know, like, which of these is important, which of these is worth remembering. And then later on, you'll be in a conversation with somebody, right? And one of those might pop into your, into your head and you might think, oh, well, you know, this is worth repeating in this particular context because it's related to, you know, the kind of news this person's reading or whatever our conversation is, Right. And so all those things, that that whole process is a circle, right? There's a circle from the point at which you hear the information and your brain has to decide which parts of it are important. That's a piece of the intentional bottleneck. Later on, when you're trying to remember, right, or particular things, there's another piece of the intentional bottleneck because you can't remember everything you heard. You just, you, you won't be able to, you have to search for it in your head. Even if you had eidetic memory where, where you just encoded everything perfectly, you still have to search for it. You still, your brain still has to sort of, if you will, kind of like, you know, stumble around in your memory and say, okay, well, there's this piece and there's this piece and there's this piece. And that was really good to this thing. So all these things are kind of coming, getting filtered through this process, even to the point where you speak and then you speak, Right. And now somebody else is at the party with you, right, or sitting at the table, and they speak too. And now there's these other people who are sitting across the table, their attentional bottlenecks come into play now, right? So now they're hearing a bunch of different information, and their brains have to decide which parts are worth paying attention to, which parts are worth remembering, which parts are worth repeating later on. And when that happens iteratively, so, we, so, so we've got the attentional bottleneck at multiple places along the way. When that happens liter- iteratively, it changes the kinds of information that's out there to listen to so that's just sort of trying trying to lay out what the attentional bottleneck is and and how it's a, how it has a consequences for the, the evolution of information that's super important and underscores the big challenge with dealing with all this information or the way our brains are physically structured the amount of even in any given moment let alone when you're talking about news and Facebook feeds and all this other stuff, in any given second, the experience around you is so rich with so much context and so much information that we physically cannot process and store and and retrieve all of it effectively. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the weirder thing is kind of the Buddhists and some of the, the Eastern philosophers, and I think this is fabulous, right? They say your brain basically kind of like makes it easy for you by categorizing all this information before, oftentimes before it really understands it. Right. So this is where you get things like stereotypes and you get, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Right. Your brain just tells you this right? You know, before you even think about, oh, yeah, this isn't interesting because this person is so and so. Right. Or, you know, racism and bigotry and things like that. I don't need to pay attention to that. I already know how it works. Right. And so that categorization, that kind of pre-categorization further limits your ability to understand the reality you're in because your brain's already telling you it knows it all already. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to dig into some of the specific biases and you and you touched on a couple of them earlier but some of the specific biases that we can fall prey to when dealing with this information overload and whether it's selecting information whether it's whether it's all the news that we receive uh facebook etc tell me about i want to start with one that i think is one of the most prevalent and the most dangerous is this idea of, of negativity bias yeah so Negativity bias is psychologists and social researchers and even economists have seen this for the longest time. There's just so much evidence for this, right? And the basic idea is that if there's a bunch of different possible pieces of information you could be paying attention to, your mind sort of ranks all these things, right? Which ones are going to be the, the ones that are most likely to pass through that attentional bottleneck? And one of the, the dimensions that it uses is how negative or dangerous is the information. And so what that means is, is if you're talking about something like, let's talk about, you know, like nuclear power or something like that for, for a second, right? So, so with nuclear power, right, there's all kinds of positive benefits um, to this, 
But as soon as we start talking about nuclear power, you're you're already you can you can already sort of feel these things in the back of your head. You know, there's sort of like, but what about the dark side? <laughs> you know, the negative side of nuclear power. Aren't there aren't there these dangerous things about nuclear power, or the same thing? So that's the negativity bias coming in, right? And we know from countless research studies that this is much stronger than the positive side, right? So if you let people talk about nuclear power for a while. I did a study, study with Robert Chagiello. You let people talk about nuclear power for a while, and they share that information with other people, and then those people share it with other people, and so on. It's called a social diffusion chain in, in, in the research literature. So you have these social diffusion chains, and what happens is, is that you can give the first people very balanced information about nuclear power. But if you let them talk about it for a while in the social diffusion chain, what happens is all the positive information kind of just gets sucked out of the air, and all that's left is the dangerous aspects, the risks, right? And then people start to worry about it, right? Then the language around nuclear power gets more and more negative. And you see this happen with people discussing antibacterial agents. You see this happen with people discussing food additives. You can see this happening in the world around you all the time because the news is is kind of a, a, a journalists are are they're at the front line of this attentional filter. They know that if they talk about the worst thing that happened in the world today, that they're going to have your attention, right? So there's all kinds of interesting news going on in the world, right? But they know that when you go looking on the news, right, whatever the worst thing is, and obviously it's worst for you, but of course it's going to be worse on average for a lot of people. You know, they know if they can just tap into that negativity bias, you're more likely to click on their news article and go, yeah, okay, I want to hear more about this bombing or this explosion, or this person who were, who was murdered by their wife, or, or this kind of thing, right? That's the negativity bias. It's almost, I've, I've never heard of a, a social diffusion chain, but that's fascinating. It's almost like a game of telephone, except things just keep getting more and more negative. That's exactly right. Yeah, it is exactly a game of telephone where things just get more negative. Yeah, that's called social risk amplification, right? It's, it's, it's basically this observation that when when people are kind of have these telephone-like conversations, the conversations just get more and more negative. And nuclear power is a great example of that. You know, we had a, a previous guest on the show maybe a year or two ago, a guy named Dan Gardner, who I'll throw his episode in the show notes. But uh, he he talks about the exact same thing, which is this idea of we live in one of the healthiest, happiest, safest times in human history. And you know, there's there's not a better time to have ever been alive from all kinds of different metrics. And yet people who spend all their time reading the news think that the world is getting more dangerous, that it's more that there's more pain and suffering and all these different things. And it's it's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So I am really curious as to what's driving that right you know because you, you might th you might think the causality is that you know we hear more about negative things just because telecommunication systems or whatever else you know internet and information is just better and so there's just more net there's more negative information for us to hear about and we just happen to hear about it because of these filters right but it might be the case that that our concern our ability to be concerned about different things has changed in the last 100, 200 years. We've done another research study on the history of the word risk, right? So in the 1800s, the word risk was, was a word that people used about, you know, associated with the loss of lives in war and combat and things like that. Whereas these days, you know, the risks are associated with all kinds of things, especially 
medical and, and health related things. So, you know, risk of dying of cancer and risk of heart disease and all these kinds of things, right? And so, so risk has become a much more prevalent word. It's become a much more negative word. And so it may be that really what's happening is our capacity to be worried about things has increased as alongside of our ability to hear all this negative information. And that's actually helping us to make things safer, despite the fact that we're paranoid, right? We wind up being worried about everything. But it's that worry, in a sense, that's, that's making, making life safer and better at the same time. So it's a weird catch-22. If that's true, I'm not sure. It's a fascinating bias, and I'm, I'm not sure uh, what the cause or kind of cycle is, but it's, it's an interesting discussion. Um, but I want to also dig into something you touched on earlier, which is one of the most insidious biases, which is the idea of belief consistency and how it's so easy to seek out information that already confirms what you believe or want to be true and put away or ignore or or hide under the rug things that might shine a different light or conflict with what you believe. Yeah, it goes by all kinds of names and, and many of them we've heard before, which is things like confirmation bias, right? Bias assimilation, motivated reasoning, group think is another one, right? So it's even related to things like cultural codes, like who are you going to listen to, right? You know, are you going to listen to people who are, in, who are not in your in-group, right? People who are in the out-group, right? You might just discount them immediately. So that's another kind of confirmation bias. I mean, I always love confirmation. Confirmation bias is great because it's kind of a, it's like the perfect criticism, right? You know, it's like I, I write things a little bit online about um, the, the true odds of shooting a bad guy, right? So this is an article I wrote for Psychology Today, you know, which is basically about what happens to a bullet when it leaves a gun, right? This is, it's interesting statistical information, right? And it's effectively all the, all the statistics I could find about what happens to bullets when they leave guns. You know, I get all kinds of criticism because of, of this article from different, from different people, mainly people who are worried about gun control. Right. Um, for some reason, they seem to feel like statistics are, are somehow anti-gun control, which I don't think that's true. Right. I think the statistics are actually really important in whichever side of the issue you're on. But, you know, the, many of them will say, oh, well, it's just confirmation bias. Right. You know, it's almost like it's almost like a very bland kind of abstract criticism. And to some extent, it, it just has to be true. Right. It's, it's like I decided that I was going to write about where bullets go when they leave guns. Right. And so, yeah, I'm biased by the, just by the very nature of the question. Right. And then, and then I'm biased by the kinds of statistics that are available. Right. And I'm biased by the, the, the language that I use to describe the victims, right. Whoever they are. Right. I mean, you know, most, the majority of bullets that leave guns go into the head of the person who's shooting, right. They're killing themselves. Right. Most people commit suicide with guns. That's what, where bullets go. Right. But I mean, that, and there's so many there's so many implicit biases just in that observation. Right. It's so. So, yeah, I think confirmation bias is sort of a criticism that that's you can you, it's really easy to use against other people. But I think it's actually really important for all of us to think about, like, what am I biased about? You know, how am I biased about the things I believe, the things I listen to? Nassim Taleb talks about, you know, when you read the newspaper, it makes you stupid. And when you, the more newspapers you read, the stupider you get. Why? Because you choose which newspapers to read, right? And when you do that, you tend to choose things that tell you what they slant the news in a way that's already consistent with your prior beliefs, right? And that just makes you dumber, right? You, you have to go outside of your box. You have to get outside of your safety zone 
if you will, in order to overcome the confirmation bias. Otherwise, you're a victim just like, well, just like me and just like everyone else. That's such an important principle. And it's easy to hear about something like confirmation bias or belief consistency bias and think that's a problem that afflicts your opponents or your intel- the people you disagree with intellectually about anything. When in reality, the number one place you should start with with this investigation, really any investigation is with yourself, right? Yeah, that's right. And asking yourself, what am I biased about? And am I really pushing myself to get outside of my own intellectual comfort zone to soak up information that might I might disagree with or I might not like to really figure out what's actually true and, and what's really what's reality really look like? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I want to use this this gun control thing again just to describe that because one of the things that was really powerful to me in writing about that, and I've, I've written several of these things also about, you know, what would what would it be like in, in Norway if Breivik, uh, you know, if the Norwegians had guns when Breivik came and things like that, right? And one of the powerful things I, I found out when I wrote about those things was, in fact, how little I knew, right? So, you know, I went out of my way to try to find all the evidence I could to describe it and these kinds of things. But there were a number of people who were very vocal and who commented on these things and the, on these things I wrote. And they basically said, look, Thomas, you're wrong because of this reason and this reason. And they weren't always nice. You know, that I, I wish they were nice, but they were always nice. But they said, you know, you're wrong because of this reason and you're wrong because of that reason and you're wrong because of this reason. And I looked into it. Right. And oftentimes, you know, they were actually telling me things I didn't know. Right. They were t- they were saying, hey, look, you know, you've got to pay attention to, you know, these kinds of th- this set of statistics over here, which you which you I didn't wouldn't say I neglected. I just didn't know about it. Right. You know, it's like you didn't you, you didn't know about these set of statistics or you're not thinking about, you know, these sort of cultural issues that deal with these kinds of things. Right. And, and that was incredibly valuable. So in other words, my in order for me to become smarter about the issues. And, and I won't say I'm, I'm smart about the issue, right? But I'm, I became smarter about the issue because I was willing to talk about it and expose myself to criticism from other people. And in doing that, I was able to, if you will, disconfirm some of my own biases. Because I went into it writing, thinking, oh, you know, I, I know what the issue is with guns and bullets and these kinds of things, right? And by exposing myself to other people's criticism, basically by making a claim, right, and, ha- and, and allowing other people to say, no, Thomas, you're wrong, I was able to disconfirm many of my biases. I'm sure I'm still very biased, but by exposing myself, I was able to deal with some of this, some of, of, of these issues. And I think that's one of the key ways that people um, can help deal with their own biases, right, is they actually make a statement. Right. You know, they actually say, look, you know, this is how I think it might work. What do you think? Right. And then they listen to what people say when they respond back to them and they go, and, you know, so, so in other words, you're not going into it thinking you're right and you have to, you know, defend your flag to the death. Right. You're thinking you're going to put a flag in the ground and you're going to say, OK, I put this flag in the ground. I think this is how it works. Now, what do you think? Right. And then other people can say, well, you know, I think actually that's the wrong place to put the flag, right? Which is, which is typically what happens to me, right? It's like, I'm willing to put the flag in the ground, but other people are like, well, look, that's really the wrong place to put it. Don't put it there, you know, put it over there somewhere or something like that. And then I go, oh yeah, okay. Actually, it makes better, makes more sense if I don't, you know, if I don't defend that claim, because that one's kind of wrong, right? So, but it's maybe better to defend this claim. And that actually helps me understand and be more resilient. It allows me to build 
if you will, more defensible uh, beliefs, more rigorous beliefs, beliefs that are better able to predict the future and that are better able to um, help other people understand what it is I'm trying to say. And this comes back to a fundamental question, right? It really, it, it, it really depends on what are you trying to optimize for? As you said, by exposing yourself to other people's criticism, you get smarter. And when you constantly seek out information that already confirms what you believe, you're actively getting dumber. And so really the question is, do you want to optimize for feeling better and feeling like you're right and feeling vindicated? Or do you want to optimize for actually being smarter? Because the path to being smarter oftentimes involves getting criticized and hearing things you don't want to hear and having people beat up your ideas and tell you why you're wrong. But then you march down the path and you end up being much better off as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is so key. There's people like Carol Dweck, who makes this relatively well-known psychologist, who makes this nice distinction about kind of performance and and mastery. Or she talks about it in terms of mindset. And I'm sure I'm mixing up several different languages here. But the the idea is that you know if you have a, a performance mindset, you just want to be right all the time, right? And that basically means you're just going to wind up with a with a closed mouth. Most of the time, the best way to be right is not to say anything, right? But if you have a mastery mindset, which is to say, I really want to understand this. This is so important. I'm willing to be wrong about it in order to get more right, right? So, so if you have this math, I want to master this particular thing, then you're willing to make mistakes, right? Then you say, I, in fact, I have to make mistakes. I have to get it wrong in order to figure out what the boundaries are of my own understanding. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of Carol Dweck, probably one of my all-time favorite research psychologists, and, and she's a previous guest on the show as well, so we'll throw her uh, her episode into the show notes for listeners who want to check that out. I mean, we've talked about a number of these biases. I want to dig into now, and, and we've honestly started down this path a little bit already, but what are some of the things that listeners can do to deal with this amount of information overload, the fact that the the information we're receiving is filtered and curated in ways that might be reinforcing what we already believe, and the fact that our brains evolved in a way that makes it really difficult to figure out what's actually true. Yeah. I think there are many different kinds of ways to deal with this, right? Um, and we're starting, I think, as modern as, as members of modern culture, we're starting to try to, to, to maybe accumulate these different ways. I think one of the ways that you, you know, a kind of, a kind of first step, right, is asking yourself, how might I be wrong, right? There's a, a good friend of mine and researcher, Stefan Herzog at Max Planck in Berlin. He studied this idea called dialectical bootstrapping, which is basically, look, you've got to make a decision, okay? Um, you know, like, Let's say, you know, when was the Battle of Waterloo or something like that, you know, um, or, you know, how many, what percentage of the population in the U.S. Uh, exercises every day or something like that, right? So it's just, it's a very simple, it's a very simple question, right? And so, so you just, you can just guess, right? Okay, you know, no, no, no risk. You just take it, make a guess. Okay, but now ask yourself, right, how might that guess have been wrong? Right? Why might it be wrong? Right? You might say, well, you know, it might be wrong because, you know, maybe Napoleon wasn't, you know, active at that point in time or, or you know, maybe, maybe you know, I'm, I'm overestimating the number of people who exercise because I'm thinking maybe they're like me, right, you know, that kind of thing. Or I'm not really thinking about the demographics in the U.S., which is, you know, there's a lot more old people than, than, than now than there is there used to be. And so, oh, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? You come up with the reasons of why you might be wrong, right? And then you make another guess. Right? And it turns out that when you average those two guesses, you're much more accurate 
than if you took the first guess or if you took the second guess. Right? So it's almost like you're using the wisdom of the crowd in your own head. Right? You're basically trying to create multiple voices in your head that basically say it could be this and it could be that. Right. So that's just the first step. Right. How might you be wrong? I mean, the second step we already talked about, which is which is trying to get the opinions of other people. And they might be going out and asking them or it might just be willing to make a claim in a public space. Right. So that other people can say, no, 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 Matt, you're definitely wrong about that. You know, that kind of thing so that you can get smarter. And then you have to be willing to say, OK, you know, they're telling me I'm wrong. Why, why might I be wrong? Right. You know, why might they be right in this particular case? Right. So th- those are a couple of ideas. Yeah, I think both of those are great strategies. And the hard part, honestly, it's easy to to intellectually think about asking yourself, all right, how might I be wrong and try to beat ideas up? I think the hard part is getting over that the ego getting over the the resistance and the desire to push back and believe that you you already know the answer and that you're already right yeah yeah definitely definitely and you really want to be right especially when you're around other people right i mean the, the people who study this sort of feeling of rightness you know are, are the ego that drives us right they're very clear you know in many instances the reason why we 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 care so much about being right is because what we're really interested in are coalitions, right? If we can just show other people that we're right or convince other other people that we're right, then we kind of gain them, you know, as kind of allies in this sort of like war on reality or whatever it is um, that we're in, right? You know, which is probably like really important, let's say 200,000 years ago. It's kind of important now, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, probably what really matters for your success in life right now is are you good at your job, right? And can you figure out what it is you actually want to do with your life? Right. Neither of those are situations where where coalitions are really important. So, I mean, to a degree, uh, you know, you, you need to be you need to have good relations with people in the workplace and that kind of thing. But that is rarely about being right all the time. Well, you bring up another really good point, which is this idea that these biases, these problems are rooted fundamentally in the evolutionary forces that shaped our brain and baked these biases in to begin with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, all the biases that I talk about, and especially in this paper, The Dark Side of Information Proliferation, which is kind of, I guess, uh, has a lot to do with, with what we're talking about today. All those biases, the sort of belief consistent one where where you're, you're more likely you know, to believe things that are consistent with what you already believe, this negativity bias, right? Your, your mind sort of ranks negative things as being really important. The social bias, it's like, what is everybody else doing, right? In this kind of hypernatural social monitoring that's going on with our telephones these days, where we're just constantly monitoring everybody, you know? And the, the last one I talked about there was sort of, you know, this predictive, this, this obsession, this addiction we have with prediction. I mean, you know, even, even this, this show, right is kind of an example of that it's like we're really addicted to trying to figure out like how can we make it better and how can we predict you know what's what things are going to you know going to be like in the future and how can we best optimize these kinds of things right and those that you know that's a good thing right none of us will agree will will disagree you know this is good it's good that we want to predict the future and we want to be better at things but if you think about it just a little bit further what you realize is is that what this means is I constantly have to be following the news, right? You know, like the science, you know, uh, you know, publications on the news because I need to be as up to date as I can possibly be about what causes cancer, for example, 
right? You know, or what the best way is to, you know, drink my coffee in the morning or whatever these kinds of things are, you know, it's, it's like obscene, the level of predictive detail that we desire in our lives. And what that means is, is that we wind up being, we wind up living our lives kind of in the noise, right? If you think about the signal, right, you know, the signal being all the scientific research that's valid, right, that, that in, in a sense is going to persist, right? That's the signal. The noise is all the little deep, little fluctuations, right? You know, this latest article that said, oh, you know, like too many olives cause cancer or something. I, that, I don't believe that, whatever. <laughs> that probably probably isn't out there. But, you know, it's like th this causes cancer or that causes cancer or, you know, this causes, you know, um, inc incontinence or, or whatever, you know, those kinds of things are that that bleeding edge of the news is mostly noise, it's just mostly like journalists picking these things that we think they think we're going to click on. And that's the part where typically there, there isn't this long history of evidence, right? It's one person, their laboratory with some research finding, and it's really provocative. And the whole reason it's interesting is because it's new, right? The whole reason that the journalist spots it and goes, ah, oh, yeah, this is the thing we really have to pay attention to do is because people don't believe it already. Right. Whereas it's really that the, the signal is mostly in these things we've known all along right, you know, to, to be true. And so that necessity to be at the bleeding edge of predictive patterns kind of puts us in a place where we get battered around by this sort of noisy news. I couldn't agree more. And, and one of the fundamental mental models that I try to use to govern where I spend my time and where I try to learn is to study things that either never change or change very slowly over time. And mm -hmm. the more you can really reinforce and build a knowledge base around things that that change very slowly instead of focusing on the ephemeral, you can start to harness the power of, of compounding to really build a truly growing knowledge base that helps you accelerate the amount you can learn and understand about reality. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So what would one piece of homework or action item be that you would give to somebody listening to this episode to start to concretely implement some of the themes and ideas that we've talked about today? So I think probably one of the most important things that we haven't talked about, but I think it's actually key to dealing with all these kinds of things is sort of figuring out who you are and what it is you really want, right, out of your relationship with reality, right? And, and so that's about kind of listing your goals, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, Brian Tracy talks about it in Eat the Frog, and there's this, there's a, a kind of substantial amount of uh, research, very strong research on what are called implementation intentions. Um, implementation intentions are you figuring out what it is you want, right? What's the future going, goal going to be? So you're writing down these goals, and then you're writing down exactly how you're going to implement them, right? This is what I'm going to do to achieve this particular goal. Meaning, this is the time I'm going to do it. This is when I'm going to do it. This is where I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it, right? These are the resources I'm going to need. This is how I'm going to get the resources I need, right? This sounds unrelated in a way, but it's not because what happens is, right, if we're going to deal with this information deluge that's all around us, right, there's so much of it. And in many ways, it's so biased by our own predispositions and by the people that, that, that it gets filtered through before it reaches us. If we don't have a really strong direction ahead of time, then we're just playing in the noise, 
right? We're just we're just sort of getting getting bashed around by whatever the latest tweet is, or the you know the latest social media chat or this kind of thing, right? You know, the latest news about this and that. If we know ahead of time what it is we want out of our relationship with reality, and what steps we're going to take to get there, then we can say, you know what, I'm going to, you know, one of the things that I want to have is I want to be kind of like semi up to date on whatever the Twitter has happening in the Twitter sphere. And so I'll give myself five minutes in the Twitter sphere. Right. But what I really care about is, you know, learning about, let's say behavioral economics or something like that. Right. And understanding how I can use that to improve other people's lives. Right. So that means I'm not going to, wind up on the Twitter, you know, in the Twitter sphere and spend the rest of the evening there or the rest of my life there. Um, I'm going to, I know what I really want and I know how I'm going to spend my time to achieve it. And occasionally I can give myself breaks, right. To entertain, to keep up to date or whatever, you know, these kinds of things, give myself a break, this kind of thing. But I know what my goals are and I know how I'm going to achieve them. And that prevents me from being bashed around by the noise. Yeah. What a great insight. And that's, fundamentally the same way that I think about it, which is this idea of figure out what you want and how you want to be in the world and what you want to optimize for. And if you really spend some time thinking about that, it will make very clear what your priorities are and where to spend your time. And the reality is in in most cases, doing things like reading the news or catching up on the latest tweet are not at all where you should be focusing your time and energy. Yeah, they're not related to your goals. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really simple way to put it. They're distractions and temporary distractions. And not only that, they're mostly wrong in the first place. Right? You know, it's just not real. Yeah. And they're making you less happy and creating more negativity and fear as well. Exactly. Maybe we could go on, right? You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the wormhole and it's connected to something else. And goodness gracious, it's just, yeah. So Thomas, where can listeners who want to learn more about you, about your research, about your work, uh, find you online? Yeah, so I'm at the University of Warwick, and I think if you type my name in and maybe type in Warwick or something like that, I'll pop up. I've written some articles about a wide variety of things. So, you know, kind of uh, does my algorithm have a mental health problem and the evolutionary value of shamanism kind of as a way of reconstructing our identities and helping helping us sort of make sense of, of really complicated issues. And most of the articles I've written, and, and indeed even the, the dark side of information proliferation, are available there. And uh, some of them are, are, I should say, more popular than others. I would definitely say the dark side of information is 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 kind of written in a way for a popular audience. But but people who are who are more who are willing, if you will, to sort of go to look a little deeper and go, okay, yeah, what is this? Um, thing called motivated reasoning or confirmation bias or dread risks or these kinds of things. Yeah, so the whole vocabulary there for thinking about information. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom. We'll make sure to include everything we talked about in today's show notes. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation and really got to the heart of some of the biggest issues that we're facing today. Great. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 